Welcome to Primary Care Talks. I'm Dr. Hassan Jahan, your host, and today we're here in Tower Hamlets to talk to Sir Sam Everington. Now, many of you may know Sir Sam, but for those of you who don't, he's had a wide and varied career, from campaigning as a junior doctor to being trustee of the King's Fund, a CCG chair, and also council member of the British Medical Association. To list all of his roles and activities would take an awful long time. Hopefully he'll tell us about some of them himself. I'm particularly excited about today's podcast because we're going to be hearing about social prescribing and how he's championed this here in Tower Hamlets to make it a success. C can we kick off then really by just asking a little bit about y your career so far, some of your background? So uh, I come from a family of seven children. I started life as a welder in a shipbuilding yard in Norway. Uh, came back to England, qualified as a barrister, realised I didn't want to be a lawyer in life, and then came to medical school, trained as a GP, landed by accident in the East End because I was given a council house uh, for free. They gave it to um, key workers in those days, and I've stayed here ever since, and uh, love the East End, live right in the heart of community, have all the, these years, and, um, and then over the years developed a whole raft of different ways of delivering primary care. I think I always knew I was slightly different from the beginning in my approach. I remember the first thing I did was give patients their notes when they sat in the waiting room. Now, that might not seem radical, but in those days that was incredibly radical. And never wore ties. It was always about um, partnership with patients right from the beginning. Um, social prescribing is absolutely about two main things. One is delivering health in its widest sense and also changing the paradigm to what you and I were taught at medical school, which was a focus on what the matter is to the patient, to what matters to them. And behind that lies the importance of motivating patients to change their life. Probably about 40% uh, of the disease that we deal with, at least 40%, is preventable, uh, is curable. You could do something about it if you take on this extended role of a GP. And the classic example is um, 10 years loss of life if you're inactive. Uh, the example in the East End of London, which is really pretty shocking, is 11 years difference between rich and poor life expectancy, 20 years difference in terms of quality of life. Now that means for an East Ender, they will hit the age of 75 at the age of 55. In in my background, I actually trained in surgery, uh, and, and I think, not to be harsh to surgeons, but social history really was a minimal component of anything we did, actually, in, in, in those days when we were working. And, and I agree with you, I think, when we're looking at medical school, the, social, the, the, the use of the word social is principally just to find out whether somebody's smoking or drinking and really what their home situation is. I, I don't think we went beyond that in terms of our training. Uh, Fascinating to listen to you. I must say I feel a bit overdressed now in my tie and typing. <laughs> so maybe revise my wardrobe next time, next time I come to talk to you. Um, I'd like to, to pick some of those themes that we've talked about, uh, or that you've talked about, I should say. Um, I do just want to pick on one thing in particular first, though. Uh, so I, I gather in the past you've been a bit of an activist and actually landed yourself in trouble. Mm. Um, is that true? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there was a lovely moment when I applied to go on the GMC Council 
And the interview was going fantastically, uh, no problem at all. And then the last question was, is there anything, if it came out, would be embarrassing to the organisation? And I said, yes, there's three things. So I've got a caution for criminal damage, I've been arrested and charged with fraud, uh, and I've been admonished by the GMC, where would you like me to start? So, of course, I then went on to explain. And, and the first one was a big campaign, and that came from a patient of mine, age 40, with two young kids who died from lung cancer in my first house office at John. And uh, I was outraged that actually uh, the, the somebody was able to put across these images which says, actually, it's going to make you beautiful, gorgeous, and everything else. No, it's going to kill you. Uh, the second one was when a friend of mine, who's now a professor in Manchester of general practice, Professor Anish Ishmael, he and I were talking one day, and he said to me, um, he'd been in an operating theatre with a surgeon, and he was talking about how he shortlisted candidates. And basically he said, anyone with an Indian surname, I just throw it in the bin. And I was outraged at this story. And so what we did was we sent fake applications to jobs. And the only difference was one had a traditional English surname, one had a traditional Indian surname, and you were half as likely to get an offer for a job interview just with a name. Now what was really interesting, we got arrested they went to the Crown Prosecution Service and of course they dropped it like hot potato. They realised the politics of it. Um, but we were referred to the GMC because of course any time anything goes to the police you're referred to the GMC. So the, the GMC wrote to us uh, a stinking letter saying this was unprofessional behaviour and we were furious. We wrote a letter back saying, excuse me, so what are you going to do about the doctors who discriminated in the process? And they said nothing, we haven't had a complaint. And uh, so we investigated the GMC, and, uh, and we found they were much more likely to discipline ethnic minority doctors. And if there was a charge applied to a doctor, it was a higher charge against an ethnic minority doctor. So you can imagine this was severely embarrassing. It's one thing we'd learnt in campaigning over the years. You've just got to push back. And, um, and uh, as I say, so I explained this in, in the interview, and uh, do you think they gave me the job? Yes. 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 Really? Yeah. And it was Sir Graham Cato, actually, because he realised the GMC had a problem. And he also knew that I and Anise had a big following out there of people who trusted us because of the research we'd done, and that actually he needed us to help transform the GMC and also to rebuild its reputation. It's not there yet. Don't get me wrong, I'm off the GMC now. Um, but yes, yeah, so that's... Um, and I, I did the Junior Doctors Hours campaign in 1989, slept outside the Royal London Hospital uh, for 48 hours, got publicity from around the world, interviewed even by Japanese television, I remember it well. Fantastic publicity, and more importantly, we got the New Deal from Virginia Bottomley, which was a substantial improvement. Uh, and then came the European Working Time Directive, and then, of course, there's the latest upset. And it's, the, the problem is now not about the number of hours, it's just about the awful conditions that junior doctors work under. That's about not being feeling supported and not being supported and being moved from job to job every four months. It's a pretty awful life, and for a lot of them, worse than when I was working an average of 84 hours a week. Maybe an unfair question, but do you think that having done all of that in the past, it's made a difference? And I can today see 
the situation has changed for trainees because of what I did? Yeah, it, it's not changed as much as I'd like it to change, of course. I mean, if you're a campaigner, you're always frustrated, aren't you? Mm. You never get to the end point that you really want. Uh, I think it, when we did the first piece of research, by the way, which was about medical uh, schools, the reaction of the profession was, no, no, this is one-off. This can't be true. It's not statistically significant, and doctors don't discriminate. It was quite extraordinary. That has completely changed. People understand that doctors are no different to anybody else. What hasn't landed uh, is a change in various parts of the system. What's good is medical school now. In some medical schools, uh, 30, 30 to 40% are ethnic minority, nearly 70% nearly women in some of them. Actually, what's really interesting is, is the white male now. <laughs> is potentially the disadvantaged one <laughs> at that point. Mm. Completely opposite, of course, mm. at the top. And, of course, uh, the, the Roger Klein's amazing report called The Snowy Peaks defines that very well. I'd like to think that we've come a long way, but, but time will tell. Well, it's still a problem. Family member. Went for heart surgery on the other side of, of London, and uh, the um, cardiothoracic surgeon was Sri Lankan in origin. And he's, he said to me, so why did you come here? And I said to him, it's entirely obvious. You're an ethnic minority cardiothoracic surgeon. You must be 10 times better to have got where you've got. What don't you get? And he was so shocked, nobody had ever said that to him. That was the shock, actually, for him, that nobody had ever, ever indicated a really positive choice for him. So I think we could probably talk about this for, yeah, for, for hours. Let, let, me, let me bring us back to the, the purpose of the podcast. So we're here today to talk about social prescribing, and we yeah. touched on it earlier in your explanation. Um, I suppose really what listeners out there would want to know, because I think everybody thinks of social prescribing a bit differently. What do you, what do you mean by social prescribing? What is it? So I would probably try and describe what we do as GPs now. So. Um, we've now, because I'm chair of Tower Hamlet CCG, we now put this in every practice in Tower Hamlet. And so it's become the norm for, in a consultation, in a 10-minute consultation, for the GP to think, have that light bulb moment of going to the social prescribing referral form, which is very quick and easy to complete, takes about 20, 30 seconds, and it's a tick box. And it will be, and in answering those tick boxes, actually you'll describe to the patient what it is. So typically it will say loneliness, financial problems, anxiety, social isolation, weight issues, wants to do more exercise, wants to give up smoking. And actually the one that some of the most cynical of doctors like, the repeat attender. And of course that's how we manage to engage everyone because there's something there for every type of doctor, whether they're on the extreme of I'm just a scientist or actually they're like the old traditional family doctor that just wants to solve the problem. And in that conversation with patients, you start the process actually of getting them to think about what matters to them. Now that then goes to the social prescribing team. And this part's really important because people get this badly wrong uh, across the country. There's this great sense that um, well, all you need to do is put together a directory of service and put it on a website and somehow people will magically land up there. It doesn't happen. So what is this social prescriber? Well, first of all, they'll ring a patient, invite them in, free cup of coffee, sit and chat, You typically for an hour, 
and absolutely get to the root of what matters to them. And almost it doesn't matter the box I've ticked. The key thing is I've had that light bulb moment to refer to them. Because actually the patient can often end up somewhere quite different to what you uh, thought they would do in the initial conversation. And that's perfectly okay. So coming back to the social prescriber, well, they've got to be emotionally intelligent and like people. Believe it or not, there are some doctors who don't like people, and there are jobs in the health <laughs> service for them, so we don't need to worry mm. about that. But in this instance, absolutely critical. Secondly, they've got to have the directory of service, but in their brain. So it might be, um, well, actually, so we've had a chat, and you, you, you love baking cakes. So ignoring what the diagnostic problem was, but you like baking cakes. Well, actually, in one of the 1,500 voluntary sector organisations that we have in Tower Hamlets, there's Jane here, who's also a fanatic cake and bake-off fan, okay? I think maybe you'd actually enjoy doing something together. That's the human side of a directory of service. But also, it comes to the core of what their role is, and that's a motivational coach. So if you help them get a job, if you get some education training for them, if you help them improve their environment, their house or whatever, all of that will help their health and well-being. And of course the classic example, and we see this actually uh, with the deputy head of the Labour Party, amazing, he, I, can't, I can't remember how many stone he lost, got rid of his diabetes. And that's what this is about. And the final thing about a social prescriber is there a fixer? You know that person in your organisation that you go to with a problem? My PA here, you know, just give them a problem and they just beaver away until they've solved it. As a GP who's worked in areas of deprivation, uh, I think this is crucial and we are embracing social prescribing in our own practice. As you said earlier, you know, there are cynics out there. What would you say to the, the people that say, well, this is social care, that's not my problem, ring social services, I'm here to fix the medical problem, if there are people that think that way anymore? Well, I often say to them, this is about helping you. This is about extending the team that can support what you're doing. So you put it to them in that way. I say to them, this is not about getting you to do more work, quite the opposite. There's very good evidence that actually if you socially prescribe, you reduce repeat attenders. So once you start putting it in those terms, they absolutely get it. The, the, the trick with anything, whether it's a campaign I'm running or anything like that, is to find a win-win scenario. This is absolutely a win for patients, it's a win for the doctors. The doctors love it because there's all these people to help them. Um, the patients love it because it's utterly focused on them as a person, as a human being. The voluntary sector absolutely love it because they don't need to market their wares. The only thing we ask you to do is to have that light bulb moment and think about social prescribing. Social prescribing, I can get into trouble sometimes for saying this, but it's free to the NHS. You, when a patient comes to see you, uh, no offence, but you're incredibly cheap, you're 15 to 25 pounds, but the moment you refer to hospital, and I asked this question of my finance director, it's a cost of over £600. So from a financial perspective, it utterly makes sense, let alone the fact that it's the right thing to do for patients. 
So if, so if I were somebody out there in an area that does, has nothing to do with social prescribing, and I'm thinking, you know, this sounds fantastic, it's really what we need, primary care is under pressure, patients could do with better uh, access to services and better linking in with the voluntary sector, how long do you think it would take for a, for a completely virgin area to, to set this up and, and get running with it? Um, so much, much quicker than it took us is the answer, and, and mainly because there is now a network across the country of 2,000. Um, and you can go to places and see and taste and smell it, if you know what I mean. Absolutely get a sense of what it is. And in fact, at Bromley by Bow, well, last year we had people from 23 countries across the world. We had people, we run courses, usually monthly, where you and your team can come and we'll tell you about our journey, uh, the 100 projects that we run, what worked, what didn't work, uh, some of the pitfalls. Not to tell you that's what you should do, because it will be different. Because it depends on people's passions, interests, the voluntary sector that's out there. So a friend of mine had a conversation with the superintendent of police in Leicester and ended up with having a police station in her waiting room as a GP, social prescribing. If you met the, the policeman, as I did years ago there, they said two things to me. They said the patients loved them. This was a new experience for them. Uh, this is an inner-city-deprived area. Police aren't particularly popular. Uh, why not put them with somebody who's very popular and respected? That's, that's a win. And secondly, their bosses thought they were fantastic because they reduced the crime rate on the local housing estate to 20% of what it was. And whereas they were boarding up houses because nobody wanted to live there, they now had a queue of people wanting to live there. This is about innovation. So this is not about the normal top-down command and control that we're used to in the NHS. Um, this is about innovation and growing it from the bottom and following people's energy and passions. And it happens because of the relationships people develop, not because of some amazingly written business plan that we see so often gets things in the NHS and so often doesn't deliver. You know, uh, I was um, a national advisor to the vanguards, which ended last April, and most of the vanguards got at least three million. And that was based on a two-page application form. And then we held your hand and took you through the process. How different is that? You're listening to Primary Care Talks with Dr. Hassan Chahan. What I'd like to hear is your thoughts, um, really, on why you think we've got to a point where we need social prescribing. Uh, what, what do you think has changed in the health sector, so in, in, in my clinic, that actually 10 years ago it wasn't a consideration, but now we've got to the point where actually this is a really important consideration for us to be able to do the best for our patients. Well, why has it changed? Um, I think there's a raft of different reasons and, and the stars are almost aligning. So there's something about the, the present NHS is just not sustainable. You know, if you carry on investing uh, in the final end of people's lives and illness and not earlier on, it's not sustainable. And the, the level of percentage that's spent in the last year of people's life to little effect is enormous. And so there's the public health perspective which says no, no, we've got to stop people getting ill, we've got to capture people earlier on in the, in the, the disease process um, and that will sustain the NHS in the longer term. Plus it won't be sustained as long as people 
continue to feel that the NHS is going to solve their problem. So I'm sure you will have experienced this. So a patient comes in, you do their blood test, you find their cholesterol's raised, and you have this conversation. And a much more traditional doctor would just say, well, fine, your risk is between 10 or 20%, and so what we'll do is we'll prescribe a statin. Patient's happy because guess what? They can carry on eating crap, not change their lifestyle, because the doctor's given them a pill, that has to change. It's almost like a mutual addiction that, that we have to patients and patients have to us. You'll often find doctors say, well, the problem is we can't change the way we're doing because the patients insist on seeing me. And then the patient is part of that addiction too because actually it's very nice in some ways to have a doctor who takes your responsibility away from you. It's, it's lovely, isn't it? Do you remember all those people who used to come in and say, can I have that pill to get rid of my obesity? Yeah. Look, we all love that. I love that too. But it's not going to be sustainable. Yeah, we've got some magic new cures for cancer coming up in the future. But fundamentally, it's about lifestyle and ownership by patients. Um, so the government get it too. I think it's really interesting, this present government, because they've utterly... Focus. So the present um, health minister, for example, very interesting what he came. I mean, was, I was so happy. First of all, he talked about tech. He's entirely right. Uh, we have modernised all our surgeries. Our, my view is we should be using the same tech in the health service as you use in your bank or anything else. And the second thing, social prescribing. Your job is to try and help solve the problem with the patient. It's as simple as that. And it doesn't matter how you do it. We've got rid of the new patient check for a lot of patients and, and we have a conversation with them about social determinants of health. You know, you're young, fit and healthy, I suspect. Do you really need to be weighed and asked how much you're smoking and all this stuff? Actually, wouldn't it be better to have a conversation with you about what, well, what's the issue for you in your life? Is it your mother's ill? Or what's going to make you healthier? Isn't that much more important? I mean, there was a lovely moment uh, with a patient of mine who was terminally ill, and you know what he really wanted uh, was to not be having to carry on going to hospital and have treatment, which wasn't going to work. Uh, he, he wanted to, his biggest wish was to go one last time onto uh, the local railway station with all his mates and train spot. And we helped him get a wheelchair to make that happen. Now, that's social prescribing, that's good health care, and that's what he wanted, and that's what we should be doing in this process. And if I was just to say a bit more about terminal care, one of our new models of care in the country reduced death in hospital with terminal illness from 48 to 14%. It's typically 50 to 60%, and yet any of you would choose probably to die at home surrounded by your loved ones. That's entirely possible, it's cheaper, it's being done elsewhere, and it's very simple how you do it. And we do it in every practice now in Tar Hamlets by having multidisciplinary team meeting every month with nurses, uh, Macmillan nurses, district nurses, GPs, pharmacists, the whole team proactively managing those group of patients that are end of life. And I take, take it a step further. All my terminally ill patients get my mobile phone number and email, and they text me even when I'm on the, uh, out at sea on the west coast of Scotland. Uh, and guess what? It's less work. And guess what? You're putting the patient in control of their life and, more importantly, their death.
That's a really interesting concept, giving the, your, your mobile number to, to patients. I know there are many colleagues who will do that for palliative, patients or, palliative yeah. patients or or those they've got links with in terms of long-term conditions. It's probably, you'd be talking 5% of patients, but actually at any one time uh, as a GP for me, it's probably 5 or 10 patients. And it's, not a, it's really not a burden. Quite frankly, it's a real much lower bereavement in the family, that's for certain, that's yeah. one of the big gains. Uh, so all of the things we've talked about so far uh, you know, sound fantastic. It's transformational here, the way you're, you're, you're changing care. And so locally in our patch, the, the year of care concept for diabetes is changing the way we're, we're reviewing our diabetic patients, where it's more a case of giving them the figures beforehand, they get a chance to digest it, and they come with their own agenda. Mm-hmm. So they come with, actually, I want to talk about this. And it might not, it might not be what you want to talk about. It might be what they want to talk about, but that's more important. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, they'll engage more. I suppose my next question to you then is, is what about the cynics? Because there'll be GPs out there, as you know, who will say, it's never going to work in my area. My patients are upper-class affluent. They don't want that. They're not going to listen to any of that. Uh, They want traditional, uh, I'm the doctor and and I need to prescribe the medicine. Or or people who are scared to change. What do you say to those people? So uh, it it reminds me of, of this doctor in the early days who came to visit Bromley by Bow. And he came, uh, I think, because he'd been sent. He, he, he clearly didn't seem to be very happy. And he came um, to our reception desk, which is the reception desk for all these hundred projects. And he was aghast that the patients could wander behind the reception desk. And it was a receptionist for everything. And there wasn't any glass or bars or anything like that. And uh, so I just looked at him and I said, yeah, but I tell you what, all these projects are financing me to run a reception, saving me a lot of money. In other words, work out what the win-win scenario is actually for these doctors. People are, doctors are no different. They're scared of change. They're scared of taking off their tie or their white coat or taking away their title. Or taking away the title is a really hard thing. Um, and you have to show them that actually it's just such a win-win. You know, actually, your work will go down as a result. It will be more enjoyable. You don't have those battles with the patients of, of saying no, do you know what I mean? Because it's a partnership approach. You'll be less stressed. I must say, I do quite like my tie and I find it quite hard to take that <laughs> off. But, you know, I'm only teasing you. <laughs> Getting rather self-conscious here. Do you want to know the truth about the fact that I don't wear any tie? Please. Listen, listen to my mum. She says it's I'm a scruff. She's right, always was. <laughs> I feel a bit naked without it sometimes. <laughs> but, uh, so, 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 Sam, what if we don't? Mm. So what if six months from now nobody wants to take this on, everybody is, is, has got fatigue yeah. and says, can't be bothered, um, can't really see the benefits? What, what's going to happen if, if, if this falls down, social prescribing? So it's not. So uh, if you came to us 25 years ago, um, we were seen as uh, off the planet, Guardian reading, Sand Brigade, however you want to, however you, whatever you want to attach to us, um, that's changed completely. Um, politicians are talking about it, the Prime Minister's talking about it. The reach is a tipping point with anything, I think, in society. It doesn't matter what you do, which I often think is a 15% tipping point. Once you've got to 15% of people doing something, it takes off exponentially. So if you go back two to three years ago, there was only probably about 100 in the social prescribing net- network. It's now 2,000. Pulse, you go back 
uh, a year ago, they talked about 20% doing social prescribing, it's now 25%. People get the importance of it for all sorts of different reasons, so this is not going to go away. Not like the original social prescribing centre, which was the Peckham experiment, set up in 1932, and uh, the building's still there in Peckham, London, uh, but they had a swimming pool, they had garden therapy. Uh, we haven't got the swimming pool at Bromley by Bow, we've got garden therapy. It was everything we were doing at Bromley by Bow. And in 1952 it was closed. And do you know why? They said we've got the NHS now, so we don't need it. But actually, if the NHS is going to survive, social prescribing is going to be critical to that. What do you think then the resource implications are for myself or other CCGs or other uh, unit authorities? What, what, are they, what do they need to do to get themselves set up for this properly? Yeah. Peanuts is my first response. And that's what my finance director said. But don't quote me on that. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's, um, uh, we probably need to put more in, but actually it's about uh, £1 per patient. £2 per patient would be brilliant. So in, in an area like Tower Hamlets or, or a typical CCG, it would be something like quarter to half a million pounds. This is nothing compared to the benefits. You wouldn't think twice of investing that in some specialist, highly specialist service. Do you know what I mean? The previous um, medical director of, of NHS England said that probably one in seven procedures shouldn't be happening in the NHS. If we just stopped doing that, we could pay for this. Sam, as a global question, how do you see the future of general practice and primary care, I should say, changing in terms of its structure? And that means workforce and the pattern of working. Mm -hmm. uh, and what would you say to the health secretary about what needs to happen or what needs to put, be put in place for that to be truly successful? Uh, general practice is critical and doesn't just need to be sustained. It needs to be expanded. And we've worked this out as commissioners. We need to expand the offering of general practice by at least a third. Outpatients doubled in the last 10 years, we're in a process of halving that again. Uh, death in hospital, terminal illness, that needs to change completely. All those elderly patients, you put somebody in a bed in hospital, aged 80, for 10 days, 10% loss of their muscles, equivalent of 10 years inactivity. Uh, something very different needs to happen, and everybody knows it. They struggle with how to do it and how to take the money out of the acute sector into primary care and prevention. But everybody knows it's got to be done. Uh, go to places like Israel where actually they put GPs at the front end of everything and pay them more than hospital consultants. That's a good news story, isn't it? Well, actually, we are critical. We are the thing that is holistic, that triages, that risk manages. Actually, sometimes that's the most skilled thing to do in medicine. Um, the other thing that absolutely has to change is, uh, so what is a GP? So you and I, when we were trained, we were the fount of all knowledge. The, the internet wasn't there. Uh, patients know far more than us. They come in knowing far more. They've done their research. And so there's a new role which is about helping them make choices. Uh, team leadership, actually, within primary care. Um, 
and using artificial intelligence. And we do that brilliantly in primary care, way ahead of hospitals. You might not think you do it, but actually when you prescribe and all those things come up saying, watch out for this, this and the other, actually there's an amazing IT system in general practice, which is really patient focused in a way the hospital system is way behind. So think about what's coming around the corner. That's an end quote, if any, I think, to be honest, isn't it? Um, was that, is that your phone that's buzzing, is it? Yeah, it probably is, yeah. One final request is, is, is there may be people out there that say, well, actually, I, I want to take up social prescribing. And nobody's giving me any support. Can I get in touch with Sir Sam? Is it okay if we forward some contact details to those individuals? So, first of all, thank you for your interest and curiosity. Um, yes, uh, I would say go on our website. So either Google Bromley by Bow or it's www.bbbc.org.uk. Bit cheeky. Mm. People slip into our website instead of going to the BBC. Um, by the way, that's because don't assume any of this is new stuff. One of the, the key rationales behind innovation is to take other people's ideas. Um, and that's what we invite people to do when they come and see us at Bromley by Bow. So I would strongly encourage them to come. That aspect of what we do is the charity, Bromley by Bow Charity, that runs it. There's usually a fee attached. I need to warn people of that, but it's worth every penny because you will have an amazing day and you will get a real taste of what social prescribing is about. Sir Sam, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. It's clear in my mind that for the future of the health service, we're going to have to embrace concepts such as social prescribing, self-care and co-production. This means that the consultation or the interactions we have with our patients are going to change because the dynamics are changing. We need to go back to training, whether that's general practitioners or whether that's nursing students or whether that's our social workers, to try and introduce the concept of social prescribing early on. Only then are we going to be able to succeed at this whole scale. Just a quick reminder from me, if you are planning any initiatives locally, always involve NHS England to make sure your plans fit within the national guidelines.